0: Hello, Cody here. For today's episode, we are going to be speaking with Dr. Adam Rossano. He's a resident from the Johns Hopkins Phipps Psychiatry Residency Program. We will be discussing psychiatry from the standpoint of psychiatrists in training and uh, kavita will be asking us a few questions from her perspective as a non-psychiatric doctor we hope that you'll find this interesting if you have any curiosity about what psychiatrists do exactly and how they think about the problems that uh, face people when it comes to mental health so Sit back and enjoy.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast Against Disease, brought to you by Humanity Against Disease. I'm Kavita Chapla.
2: And I'm Cody Weston.
1: And today we have a very special guest, one of our co-residents, Adam Rossano, who is a third-year resident in psychiatry. He is here today to talk to us more about psychiatry and what psychiatrists do and how they can best take care of their mental health.
3: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. A little bit about me, I did my medical training and my Ph.D. in San Antonio, Texas. My Ph.D. was in cellular neuroscience. And after that, I was a postdoc at Mayo Clinic for two years in the Department of Biomedical Engineering and Physiology, continuing to do work on ion transporter biophysics. Then I came here as a resident I'm in my third year of residency as a psychiatry resident. And psychiatry is a medical discipline that is... Based on the diagnosis and treatment of mental illness, which would be defined as abnormalities in thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, with abnormalities being things which cause either dysfunction, danger to self or others, or distress of the individual experiencing the illness.
1: I think that's a huge point that I didn't understand until I went to medical school, that people can have thoughts that are intrusive, that you you can have thoughts that make you want to wash your hands every time that you leave the kitchen or you can have thoughts of oh I'm not doing great today I'm just kind of sucking at what I'm doing but I didn't catch that last part until medical school of if you can have those thoughts everybody has those thoughts but when those thoughts are affecting your ability to do your daily activities like your ability to get to work on time because you just keep washing your hands or your ability to hold a job because you have such low self-worth then it becomes a mental illness so I think that was a very crucial part to the definition.
3: Yeah, and that also speaks to one of the more challenging aspects of treating mental illness, which Mm -hmm. is that in many cases, certain patterns of behavior actually overlap with what we would consider to be normal or healthy behavior, but depending Mm -hmm. on context, may be causing dysfunction or distress. And so oftentimes, even defining what mental illness is involves a comprehensive clinical judgment rather than just a list of symptoms or Mm -hmm. a checklist that we could go through And that means there's always an inherent amount of interpretation in even defining what an illness is, Mm -hmm. but it creates an additional layer of complexity because communicating that to somebody suffering from an illness is difficult, as their experience and their conception of what it is may actually be different than what we as physicians would characterize as the key components of their illness.
1: That's a huge point, too, that you just brought up, that when you have a mental illness, your perception of yourself or your perception of what your reality is is Maybe be different than what someone else's, like a doctor or a friend, sees.
3: Yeah, and certainly it may be that a mental illness actually impairs your ability to understand that. Mm-hmm. Uh, your perception of reality is fundamentally altered. But it can be more subtle than that at times, too, where sometimes a person's own internal distress is generated by where they are in their life relative to their own assumptions and their assumptions may be radically different than my assumptions of what healthy functioning would be or what the assumptions of another individual with a different background or different culture would be. And that brings us into this idea of if they are engaged in mental health care, what aspect of that distress is part of a disease process and what part of it is more a mismatch between elements of their personality, their achievement and the environment around. Them. This gets into a complicated topic in terms of explaining how psychiatry works in the context Mm -hmm. of medicine because to a lot of medical providers, what we see most overtly is the person's distress. We see their way of communicating that they are suffering some way, and most of medicine is designed to alleviate suffering. In the case of psychiatry, although that's one of the primary goals, Fully exploring how to effectively alleviate suffering is often more complicated than simply removing the source of suffering or administering medication which would impair the person's ability to feel the suffering. It ends up being really complex to try to evaluate
2: and treat mental illness because mm-hmm. of some of the, the factors you mentioned. What are your thoughts on how this whole perspectives approach we do at Hopkins does to help us address this problem? and yeah. Do you have any thoughts on what blind sides remain after we've considered these main four categories? And for those of you listening, the four perspectives that we're encouraged to consider in the psychiatry program here are the the life story of the person, the dimensions that would be like somebody's intelligence or personality traits, their behaviors, and the underlying uh, disease.
3: There are two main limitations for me. Sometimes it's easy to assume because we have this as a way of organizing clinical information about a patient that that somehow implies we're talking about something that's objectively true and verified when this is really just an organizational and diagnostic tool for the clinician. It's not meant to imply that by considering all of these things you have explored something that represents the totality of the person's experience or implies something about why they are experiencing the different things they are. and The main limitations of this come up if you interpret something like substance use disorders as being merely a behavior that leads to this conclusion that there is no underlying neurophysiologic change, that it is something the person does and therefore separate from a disease. That's objectively untrue from what we know of basic science work in addictions there are neurochemical changes that accompany that. And I think it's important to not overinterpret the perspectives approach as though these distinctions are absolute or objectively verified such that they are giving you that type of information. The other thing is that although it is very useful for organizing information about a patient and making sure you don't miss things, the actual assessment of all of those perspectives is still very much based on the clinical experience of the Physician or the evaluator that's applying them. And probably the most difficult aspects of that come into play with the dimensional and the life story perspective. Sometimes, if you apply the life story perspective in the context of what has happened to this person, and how have they responded to stress in their environment previously, and what is their own internal narrative to explain their place in the world relative to what they've experienced, that usually avoids a lot of the trouble. But if you start using it to your own narrative to the person to anticipate their behavior to anticipate their interpretations then you run into all the problems of your own individual biases and the other issue with the dimensional perspective is similarly you're trying to assess aspects of the person's personality which would imply something that should exist largely you know independent of illness when they're doing their best these are aspects of their personal cognitive and emotional structure And you're assessing that very informally through just questioning them, talking to them, and and doing an interview with them. Although there are systematic ways of doing that, it is not clearly validated that that informal interview is a good representation. And oftentimes, if you're a psychiatrist, you're interviewing somebody who has symptoms of an illness, which will obscure the dimensional aspects. Because oftentimes, when people are ill, they behave in ways that are contrary to what we would consider to be their personality. So it's also easy to get into this confusion where you're using language that primarily describes somebody's well state as part of their diagnosis when they're ill. And that's very challenging sometimes unless you're mindful of how confusing that can be. It reminds me of the idea of like trying to describe to people what a trout
2: is like by watching it flop around on a kitchen table. And you raise a good point. I mean, I just saw this in the emergency department the other day. I saw a patient who was very ill, and the description I got of her normal state of function blew my mind because I would never have guessed what she was normally capable of given the
3: level of function she was showing at that point and the severity of her illness. And and I found probably the best objective verification that you may be on the right track if you're trying to assess somebody's underlying personality is if you talk to their family and you've recognized, from your interview with the patient, you've recognized certain patterns of behavior that fit with certain known clinical patterns of personality disorders or even just vulnerabilities people may have. And when you talk to their family, it sometimes feels a little bit like you're doing a bit of a a cold reading, like a magician or a psychic or something, but you start to present scenarios that anticipate if this is the person's pattern of behavior, you would expect that their family has experienced certain things in their interactions, Mm -hmm. and you see if that sounds reasonable to the family. And usually it's a pretty binary thing. Either they look at you like you're completely ridiculous and you're describing something they've never seen the person do. Or they have this sort of epiphany moment where you come off like you're some sort of Jedi because you're describing their own experience without actually having heard that experience directly from them. Mm -hmm. And then you have a better idea of like, okay, I think these vulnerabilities that I'm seeing right now when the person's ill They seem to have persisted longitudinally through their life, and even the people who know them best are able to identify that pattern of behavior that I would predict. And the prediction is never to define the person or say anything about who you think they are. It's more you were, again, looking for those important things of dysfunction, danger, and distress. You were looking for, is there something that I think I can intervene upon that would help this person? And is this way of thinking about them going to let me do that? Mm. The most effective, I find it, is whenever you're trying to avoid overly pathologizing things, because oftentimes, you know, people in very stressful situations can have erratic or even dangerous behavior. That does not necessarily mean they have a psychiatric illness, and it doesn't mean that recommending medication or anything like that is the first go-to thing you need to do. Sometimes understanding the context in which that behavior has occurred actually gives you a better way of helping. You bring up an idea that these dimensional vulnerabilities and these personality
2: traits can be such a huge part of the picture that can completely sculpt whether somebody is going to be essentially brought low and require hospitalization for some other scenario or whether they're going to be resilient and get through it. I think that we spend more energy in psychiatry explicitly looking at that and trying to dissect it than in other areas of Mm -hmm. medicine But what has always caused me some pause is there still seems to be so little we can do about it. I mean, you can try to anticipate needs, but it's not as if we have a specific answer for the majority of those problems. Have you experienced any situation where understanding somebody's traits has allowed you to care for them in a way that you felt was more effective than what you would have done
3: otherwise? It's not often the case that in an acute setting you're going to enact some sort of miraculous intervention at that scale that actually changes the person's trajectory. But it is helpful if you're explaining complex elements of care. You're trying to build a therapeutic alliance with somebody. And based on some of the personality vulnerabilities and strengths that you've identified kind of casually as you talk to them, you may have a better idea in your head of how to organize information that would be meaningful to them. This comes across when people, some people are more inherently punishment averse than they are Mm award-seeking. So some people don't do very well with encouragement. If you throw them a little party and you tell them they're doing well, they actually find that overwhelming to hear because their mind sees that as you've set an expectation they feel they can't meet. Mm -hmm. Whereas other people that are strongly extroverted have a, a heavy reliance on their external environment to kind of control and shape their internal emotional responses. Those people may respond very well to praise and This helps you as you're trying to build that alliance and you're trying to move through complicated decision-making with the person, feeling, how do I communicate this information in a way that's likely relevant to them? And I think it is very helpful for that part of it. Mm -hmm. Similarly, it can help you anticipate which parts of an illness somebody is likely to have insight about and which they may not. People that are highly neurotic, meaning in this technical case, meaning they tend to feel emotion strongly, with a tendency to hold on to emotion and also perseverate over negative qualities of emotion more frequently than positive ones, those people, you would assume, are classically going to be more depressed in appearance, they'll be more susceptible to that, but it also means that they may, if they are used to a negative interpretation of their environment they may not report that as being a meaningful change in their symptoms. They may not report that their attitude about themselves has shifted in the context of their illness where they're used to the emotional experience of feeling negative things in their environment. So when that tips over from being just, you're dealing with the day-to-day reality of life, which is you will face disappointment, you will face even pain, you will face suffering, It's different when you start to internalize that as I deserve to feel this way. And the fact that they are familiar with the experience sometimes obscures their ability to see that part, to see that transition into, I now feel like this not only is normal, but it is deserved. Hmm. And that is something that clinically would be very important to me because it tells me that this person, if I'm concerned that they have depression, not only do they have a negative emotional valence to things they're experiencing sadness in an exaggerated way all the kind of typical almost cartoonish depictions of depression that we... the other aspect of it is they are now Cognitively rearranging their perception of the world around that feeling mm-hmm. and that's one of the Hallmarks of somebody that's suffering from major depression versus they're having a bad day mm-hmm. and that sort of thing can be really important that I In dealing with a highly neurotic person, I may have the inclination to ask about that more explicitly than I would other people, because I anticipate this will be something that modifies their portrayal and representation of their illness, not because they're trying to let it influence it, but just because it's part of their makeup to interpret their own suffering a particular way. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it all comes down to the,
2: I guess, the lens through which they're they're viewing things at baseline. And like you said before about vulnerabilities, just this idea that they're already going to be predisposed to feel this way, so you may need to characterize that in a more in-depth way.
1: I want to unpack a couple of things that you've said. So it sounds like psychiatry is very challenging because mental illnesses alter the way that a person has thoughts, feelings, emotions, behaviors, and reactions to their everyday environment, which sounds like when they are experiencing a mental illness they might be acting completely differently than who they might be normally. And so it sounds like you do have to rely on family members when you first meet somebody because you don't know what they are like on most days. But then it's interesting what you say about having to that psychiatrists think about personality a lot more and how that affects how they're going to respond to treatment, respond to your explanations of what's going on and how you'll motivate them to improve their health and um, stick with healthy behaviors. So I wanted to ask more, you've mentioned a couple of the traits. What are the different things within personality that you look at in a person thinking, you know, for my own self, how would I talk to, how can I think of these characteristics in my own patients when talking to them about weight loss or high blood pressure? And how might everyone around us who's listening think about these traits when they're just thinking about how am I going to communicate with my friends, family members, co-workers, and the people I meet every day. Sure.
2: So, like, I guess the big five <laughs> personality traits that we tend to use are uh, the same ones that have been used across personality psychology, and they've been validated across cultures, and they consist of neuroticism is the tendency to feel um, emotions strongly, with the tendency to have more negative emotions is generally how that's perceived. There's extroversion, which is defined differently than normally defined, in that extroverted people are more present-oriented, introverted people tend to be more oriented on the future and the past. There is conscientiousness, which is similar to its uh, colloquial definition, that you have a level of detail, orientation, and desire for order. Agreeableness, which is this one I actually do find harder to define clearly. It's essentially the go with the flow sense is how I always think about it. But maybe
3: you have a better way of thinking of it. Yeah, I, I tend to think of it as sort of your your perception of your relative station compared to other people's emotional states and just their their action and their autonomy around you. And one way you can think about this is You know, people that are very agreeable tend to be very trusting. They tend to have an awareness of other people's emotional states, but at the same time, in perceiving another person's emotional states as being very valid and aware of them, they will often extend trust to that person. Whereas somebody who's not very agreeable tends to be distrusting because they either don't perceive or don't ascribe salience to that experience. The other times this comes up is individuals with varying degrees of autism spectrum disorder will sometimes manifest a low agreeableness because they lack the the ability to perceive the emotional states of others. Therefore, they don't act in a way that we would describe as agreeable in this technical way because they're not able to kind of see their station relative to that of other people's emotional experiences. And then you can have the other extreme of people that perceive it but choose not to act on it. And that at an absolute extreme may characterize somebody that has something like antisocial personality disorder would be consistent with that, where they're completely aware of the emotional state of others, but it doesn't motivate their behavior. And that's also where you can see that this breaks down a little bit. Even though the Big Five is fairly well validated as a research tool across psychology, it's also not 100% you know encompassing all of human behavior. Um, the other thing is that everybody falls on these dimensions towards one end or the other, there are plenty of people that are more or less modestly in the middle and don't really have an extreme of either. And this gets into a problem where we use vocabulary that makes it sound like these are matters of type when the way they're tested and the way the scoring works it actually is more a measure of degree to which you fall into these categories. And that can make it a little hard to be predictive unless a person's at the extremes. The fifth factor is um, Openness. openness. Which is also... A bit difficult to describe, but it's broadly openness to new experience and new ideas, and that plays into the ability also to abstract ideas, to consider ideas that are not your own, and kind of hold them and manipulate them. And, you know, same thing with all of these dimensional characteristics, it's not that this is fundamentally a good thing if you were high on openness. If you were high on it, you probably have certain strengths. If you're low of it on it, you have others. The thing we sometimes encounter is that people that are high on openness are often more comfortable with lying and misrepresenting information because they see less of an objective restriction on what is permissible information or a permissible mode of thought. So they are usually comfortable with lying, which in a pathological sense, that may play play into the way that they manifest illness. It may also play into their dysfunction in some cases. The other classic way it gets discussed is people that are highly open often, you know, are kind of the people that will try anything once. So they may engage in risk taking behavior, not necessarily as a pattern, but as a way of like experiencing their environment for the first time. To provide the counterpoint of the strengths of openness, I
2: think the, the major advantage, if I have a patient sitting across from me that, I'm, that I suspect is extremely high of openness, this same thing could play in, in that if I propose something that they're not familiar with, For example, if you're trying to persuade a severely depressed person that ECT is right for them, somebody who's high on openness may be more interested in hearing the facts rather than forming a knee-jerk reaction. So that is one of the cases where high openness can be an advantage. And Conversely, if someone is very low on openness, they may be very interested in the traditional hierarchy of things in the traditional order, but if you are proposing an experimental treatment or something of that nature, they would be far more resistant and, I guess, suspicious.
1: So it sounds like these big five, neuroticism, extroversion, conscientiousness, agreeableness, and openness, it sounds like having too much or too little of any of those can be pretty challenging, um, that maybe it's better if people have kind of a moderate combination of all of these. But then how does this play into, like, if you guys first meet a person or if you're seeing somebody in your clinic for multiple visits, how do you guys start to kind of figure these out?
2: For the most part, it is something that comes out pretty organically, and I'll get a sense of who somebody is over time just through the way they're dealing with situations. If somebody's really an enigma, you can certainly send them for formal testing on these axes and get a more complete picture of their makeup in that sense. I tend not to work with it all that much unless, as Adam said, someone is on the extreme and I'm going to be trying to take that into account specifically. I think of it more of like a seed and soil issue where, yeah, if you want to be super versatile and can get thrown into any culture or any situation, you probably want to be dead center in most axes. In general, you're going to be resilient to a lot of things if you're uh, not too extreme. But conversely, there are extreme environments that would favor certain extreme personalities. High extroversion can be really useful if you're somebody who needs to be able to passionately react to the things around you. It helps you understand not only who somebody is, but then you can start to put together a picture of how well or not well they fit their environment and whether there are some environment changes that can uh, provide them with a healthier
3: context in the context in which you're interacting with patients there's this perception that psychiatry is about talking to people and oftentimes when we do inpatient consults that's even what we're asked to do is the patient wants to talk to somebody can you come talk to them and that obscures that this is actually more structured than that makes it appear so even though we may not ask specific questions to elicit these traits the interaction you have with a patient inherently carries some structure to it. You're an authority figure presenting in an official capacity, usually with something that denotes you as a physician. The patient has either asked to speak to you or has displayed behavior that was concerning enough to other people to prompt this interaction to occur. So that gives you a lot of context for how to start to feel out these aspects of the person's personality because it's not it, it's not like you're just walking down the street and you say hi to them and I've mentioned this to people in my personal life before like I don't walk around the stethoscope and listen to the lungs of everybody I run to on the street I also don't take personality inventories of everybody in my personal life that I just happen to talk to because that's not appropriate and it's also not really possible inherently there's something about that therapeutic interaction and your relationship as a healthcare provider is part of what enables your ability to do this. And so you start to pick up on some of the traits much more easily than it would sound like because you're not doing this in a vacuum. The person's there talking to you for a reason. There's a structure to that interaction that brings out some of these traits. You get some people that if they're highly extroverted, sometimes what that means is their language of communicating to the world not only are they influenced by their external environment, they also require a demonstration in the external environment as a way of communicating to you. So, you walk up, they recognize you're their physician immediately. They're effusive, they're wailing, they address you by your title, like they they perceive that as an as an efficient mode of communicating with you. Whereas an introverted person might be more quiet because their suffering is predominantly to them an internal experience and they may struggle to communicate with that with you. But you see that in their body language immediately when you walk up to them, you don't really need people to tell you that part, especially if it's so profound that it's now relevant to their treatment. And that gets into one of the issues with things like online personality testing. If you look up the five factor model, you can find all sorts of like 30 question condensed versions of it. You can take little quizzes on the internet. It's not just that like the 30-question version may not be accurate. It's also that absent a clinical context, this doesn't mean anything. It's not meant to define who the person is. It is a tool for a clinician in this context to help inform me as to how to help the person. It has very little to do with who they are
1: individually. That makes sense. And it also sounds like these qualities are very dynamic and changing in a person. Uh, over time and in different scenarios. I imagine a person in their normal personality versus a person who is experiencing major depression, they might score higher or lower on some of those uh, traits.
3: Yeah, And that that's one reason that we rely a lot on other family members and collateral information to do this. As they are technically defined, these traits don't change. They are aspects of the person's kind of well personality so they should be fairly static once they form in adolescence into early adulthood but that doesn't mean that you always act in accordance with them and sometimes that gets into as a psychiatrist i would define something as an illness behavior where i would say this person is you know this is their baseline personality over here but what i'm seeing is totally different to that because it is now motivated by illness and i need to know that because i need to know what parts of the person's behavior have been influenced by the illness. And the classic example of that is mania. People that are manic are often hyperverbal. They speak frequently. They speak intensely. They're not able to be interrupted. They speak very quickly. They appear extroverted due to that. And it may be that at baseline, that is not their personality at all. And this is where it gets into the way that we use it clinically is a little different than the way it's used in formal psychometrics, where... The idea is you test a well person, you develop something that is about their innate traits, and you develop a picture of that. Where we're interested in it is I just need enough of a picture to know how is what I'm seeing different. I think this person's more in the basket of having a personality disorder where they're developing a pattern of behavior that is consistent with extremes of personality. And even when they're well, they still do these sorts of things. And this has reinforced a pattern of suffering that they've experienced or is this night and day something is different about them and that's usually more consistent with now i'm worried about this person has major depression they have a psychotic illness they have mania there is something motivating this that is not as straightforward as a pattern of reinforced behavior
2: and that can completely sculpt how you're going to address the problem because i mean you can't medicate away a personality for example you're also going to want to know like
3: i guess what you're shooting for and when you have reached their baseline. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of times we have conversations with families where you eventually end up speaking a very casual language with them. But you just kind of go, since he's a, been a kid, is he weird? And they're like, oh, yeah, he's weird. And I'm like, OK, that's not. Then what we all collectively just meant, like having interviewed this person, knowing that individual, the, what we meant by weird is not the illness. There's some other reason I'm talking to this person. And that's usually very helpful. And it also helps um, destigmatize some of this when you're speaking to family members and you can kind of present some of this information to them because you're also trying to avoid pathologizing or stigmatizing the fact that certain different people have different experiences and different ways of communicating their emotional experiences in the world. It is not that any of those ways is inherently wrong. So you're trying to leave it open that, you know, you're not there to... Tell people how to be or how to live their life or anything like that. You're again trying to help them and trying to understand what has led them to seek out care or what has led to a change in behavior that prompted their uh, their family or even a stranger on the street to say, "I think this person needs to see a psychiatrist." Puts us in a weird place as healthcare
2: providers because I mean, most traditionally you go to a doctor to get something fixed, and yeah, like like you were saying, Adam the idea that somebody can have traits that are extreme or see the world in a different way. We're not about to try and make everybody into a cookie-cutter um, version of the same person. We don't even have that capability even if we had wanted to, but it is part of a of understanding the person so that we can provide the best help for the thing that is treatable if they have such a thing.
1: That brings me to my next question. So. When people see a psychiatrist either in the hospital because they're very sick or in clinic because they have asked to see one or their primary care doctor has told them you need to see one, what can they expect from their time with you? It sounds like you will be speaking with them, but you'll be speaking with them in a in a technical way. What does that look like?
3: The general format is the same. There's a little bit of um it can change a little bit depending on the presentation. Somebody that is lordly disorganized in their behavior such that they pose a danger to themselves that I'm seeing in the emergency room. That may be a very different sort of interview because um, I'm I'm a concerned about taking acute intervention to stop the behavior that would harm them. That's, you know, the far minority of psychiatric interviewing is in that context, but it can change the way you do it. The general way we would do it, though, is you speak to the person and you try to one, ask them, in their own words, why are they there? The same thing you do in any other um, medical interviewing. You just get the impression, why are they there? and What has registered as a source of distress to them such that they would like a medical evaluation? And in this case, it just happens to be a mental medical evaluation. And then for diagnostic purposes and to help us understand how to help them, we then usually say, okay, like, you've told me about why you're here. Oftentimes, you offer some sort of structure to them. What I usually say is, you know, tell me why you're here. What do you hope to get out of this interaction? Like, what do you hope that I will be able to do for you? And I say, okay, have you given me one to two sentences of that? Take me back. When was the last time you were okay? Tell me when did it seem like life, as far as you perceived it, was okay and tolerable, and work me forward from there. And that fills out sort of the history of present illness for me. Knowing that context and knowing that that's where we're going I then take a more comprehensive history and I say, you know, I need to have the context for everything you just told me and what you've experienced. Tell me about your family. Has anybody else ever had experiences like this? Has anybody ever been hospitalized? Anybody ever tried to hurt themselves? Who are your major close sources of support now? Were they always there in your life? Who raised you? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you grow up easily turns into, where'd you go to school? Did you need special education? When'd you graduate high school? How far did you go in college? How was school for you? Did you enjoy it? Did you not enjoy it? And you try to make it sound like a natural conversation at this point that kind of leads them through the narrative of their life. It does a couple of things. One, it's giving you a lot of clinical information. It lets them know what is the genetic load or risk of illness this person has based on the symptoms displayed by the rest of their family. Their educational attainment can give you some ideas of what was the stability of their upbringing, what were the expectations imposed on them. Do they have a learning disorder or something that makes me think I need to ask more detailed information about their cognitive functioning because some people do have mild degrees of intellectual disability or learning disabilities that may not be evident if we were just to casually talk to them but can influence the presentation of a psychiatric illness. That's usually your best shot at getting into that. You talk to them about their employment, then you Also, we're giving them the chance as you're going through all this to talk about things that have varying degrees of emotional salience to them. Hopefully, you're asking them a couple of questions that are mundane, that they don't really care one way or another what the answer is, and you see what is their emotional reactivity to that information. You also start to see what part of the narrative do they emphasize. Is it always, I had a bad relationship with my father, we never got along, we were estranged, and then you realize you have to directly ask the person about their mother, and when you do, they're like, oh, she was great. But you see the way that they've chosen to portray this. They clearly have assigned varying degrees of importance to different aspects of their life. And that starts to inform your assessment of their personality. It also gives you some more semi-objective information about possible features of illness that they may not be able to describe as a feature of illness. Oftentimes this comes up when you ask them about things like their education. Did you ever take time off? was there anything that interrupted your work or anything like that? Because sometimes people won't identify those as being features of an illness at the time. But as you go back, these things they think of as being, well, I went through a stressful time and I just didn't do well. And meanwhile, as somebody that's done hundreds of these interviews, you have the perspective of almost everybody experiences the death of a family member. Everybody experiences like the loss of a relationship that doesn't lead everybody to take time off from work, take time off from school, but it did for this person, and what does that tell me? And then you do some more basic housekeeping stuff, like what is their substance use history? What is their relationship to that substance use? Um, do they? Is it problematic from a clinical perspective, but also what is their assessment of that? Then if they have a, a prior psychiatric history, you have to get into that as well. What medication have you been on? Uh, have you ever been hospitalized? Have you ever tried to harm yourself? Have you ever tried to die? And you start to learn that there are certain things you have to ask very, very directly, but you also need to have put in the time to get to that point in a conversation to be able to ask them that. And this is something that often takes longer than a conventional medical interview, but does not take as long as most people think it will, because you relax the patient's perception of time by letting them talk about things that are not illness-related. And that's often very helpful for for people by the time you get to talking to them about things that are illness related. But the challenge is for a lot of patients is when you try to tell them what to expect from this, they're going to talk about themselves. But it won't always be totally obvious why we're asking about things. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that we
2: I really like this about the approach we take is that we do learn about the whole person And even though it's not always going to play into our formulation of the illness, I mean, if somebody comes in with a really bread and butter presentation, I might know what my diagnosis and plan is likely to be within 10 minutes. It is important to understand what they're about, especially if you're going to have a longitudinal relationship with them, because then you know how to kind of synergize your treatment with what they want. and you can kind of gauge how effective you're being by how well they're approaching the life course that they seem to be wanting to shoot for.
1: I love this. This is kind of like picking the brains of psychiatrists and understanding how you approach things. And I'm sure for most psychiatrists, that is exactly what they do. But I think for anyone else, it's very interesting to understand the way that you approach the medical interview and talk to patients and what you're thinking about at different stages. Um, So I do want to ask about, you know, what are the tools in your toolbox? But before that, I wanted to ask about diagnosis. So now you've talked to the person and you're reaching your diagnosis. Can you tell me a little bit about how psychiatrists make diagnoses? And uh, if it's not too much, talk about maybe the broad categories of mental illness that um, exist.
3: Yeah. So probably the broadest categories are affective illnesses, so illnesses of mood, And then psychotic illnesses, so illnesses that involve a disruptive perception and a relationship to reality. Anxiety disorders are often kind of under the same umbrella as affective, but um, usually can have differing aspects to them as well. And some people would group PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder under anxiety disorders. There's some debate about that, about whether or not that's an appropriate characterization You can get into more esoteric things like substance use disorders. Well, substance use disorders are not esoteric at all. They're very common. Personality disorders. And then the more esoteric things are things like paraphilias um, that are less common in the population. So we oftentimes don't think about that, particularly unless the patient has brought that up. But we will...
1: What is a paraphilia?
3: Paraphilia is broadly defined as
2: a sexual interest that is not congruent with the norm. So that can range, that can be very, very broadly used to explain someone who has what could be called sex addiction, which we don't really use officially in our diagnostic framework. Most commonly, you'd think of things like pedophilia, necrophilia, bestiality, um, zoophilia, forms of sexual attraction that are gonna cause, as you can imagine, big
3: problems with somebody trying to, to function in society. Yep. Again, that's not like part of our, our big baskets. Our big baskets are usually mood disorders, anxiety disorders, psychotic illnesses, and neurocognitive illnesses are often a feature of this as well. Um, just because it sneaks up on you if you don't acknowledge it, that somebody has either either specific learning disabilities or as they've aged, they've developed neurocognitive symptoms, either of an organic illness of a neurodegenerative disease as the sequelae of substance use previously, those can also have very frank psychiatric uh, presentations that you have to be aware of. And so when you first see somebody, you're sort of your biggest baskets are usually mood, psychosis, anxiety, substance use, and then is there a neurocognitive
1: component? Can you describe a little bit about how the forms of diagnosis in psychiatry evolved? Like, there's this book called the DSM, is it five right now?
2: Yeah, we're at five right now, and we can certainly take a crack at it. This, we get uh, history kind of beaten into our heads and up.
1: Yeah, I and like we'll your thoughts on it. what you think of that blue book.
2: Yeah. I don't know if we'll be able to do it justice. I will say at the outset, I find that the DSM can be somewhat limiting I'm frustrated with the way that it really focuses on categorizing everything and putting people into boxes. I don't know that I share the same opinion as everybody at Hopkins, but I feel like oftentimes the diagnostic category is far less important than the specific presentation and sort of how, how you plan to treat it. And the specific box, like whether you're going to call somebody major depression or adjustment disorder because it's been, you know, X months versus... Uh, in a different period of time, I feel like is almost immaterial. But I know there are people who find it to be much more instructive than that. I think it depends on how
3: cautious you are about applying those labels and, and being clear about your words. Yeah, and I tend to not view the DSM as being all that useful clinically most of the time. Its original purpose was actually to create a unified language for research so that when people were publishing, we would all be describing the same illnesses the same way so that when we had to pool population data, we would know that these terms meant the same thing and applied to the same people. That has gradually evolved into it being more of a diagnostic document in the clinical sense And unfortunately, a lot of that is influenced by the need for medical billing. It's a need to condense things down into a single word or phrase to say what is going on with this person. Most of the time, effectively treating somebody would not be sufficiently achieved if that was the way you perceived it. At the same time, there's always a balance between you adhere to the technical language so that other physicians know what you're talking about, and you would describe what you're seeing the same way. At the same time, you don't want to be totally beholden to that, saying that this is what defines the person's illness. It's a challenging thing to deal with, but it's, it's part of kind of the balance of being a physician and saying, what do I need to do to help this person in front of me versus what do I do to participate more broadly in academic research? And what do I do to communicate what I'm seeing to other people? Because in order to effectively help the person in front of me, I have to anticipate that I am not the sole participant in their care, which is a huge aspect of psychiatry. We rely very heavily on uh, specialized psychiatric nursing. We have a lot of stepped levels of outpatient care. We do intensive outpatient programs where people come for uh, psychotherapy and group sessions multiple times a week. We have psychiatric rehabilitation programs. We have inpatient units. We have day hospitals. We have assertive community uh, treatment and mobile treatment teams. So it is inherently so interdisciplinary and your care of any given patient will be handled by people of diverse backgrounds with all levels of clinical training. And it is helpful at that level to have a descriptor of what you are seeing that everybody will agree upon. It's just not good to get totally locked into that as being why, you know, who you think this person is. But it is, you know, that kind of gets to the point of like, So when does the diagnostic clarity matter? Usually for psychiatry, the big division is if the person has psychosis or not, is a pretty binary step in their diagnosis as well as their treatment. And psychosis being defined as impairment of reality checking. And so this can be like, does this person's ability to interact with the shared, putting aside metaphysical arguments about whether or not any of this makes sense, just assuming (laughs) there is a shared world of experience that we all participate in, this person has an impairment which does not allow them to separate their mental space from that world. Now, it may be because they hallucinate. They actually perceive things in a sensory way that are not derived from that world. It could be that they're delusional. They have schemes of belief which are not congruent with the world around them. And not only do they have those beliefs, those beliefs actually hold such such salience to them that it would impair their ability to interpret information that is contrary to them. Or are they what we would call formally thought disordered, which means their internal mental experience is so motivating to their behavior and their interaction with the world that they cannot reasonably participate in conversation, in basic functioning with the external world, because their thought is actually either jumbled or interpreting the world in a different way. All of those can be aspects of psychosis. Um, The ones that everybody thinks about are delusions and hallucinations. Truthfully, those things, if you see them, yes, they're slam dunk things. They're really obvious. Formal thought disorder is actually more the diagnostic thing that I would use when somebody is psychotic, because it's the thing that nobody knows how to fake. You don't see when somebody's withdrawing from alcohol, when somebody's on cocaine, when somebody's acutely intoxicated on heroin. Their their behavior and everything is so floridly and cartoonishly dysregulated that the words we use to think about formal thought disorders almost don't apply anymore. It's when people have that subtle level of psychosis that's actually really concerning because that's much more consistent with a chronic primary psychiatric illness.
1: Can you describe... Uh, what subtle level of psychosis might mean, um, what somebody might be experiencing in terms of their thoughts.
3: There are a couple of terms we use for this. They... It's easier to show somebody what this looks like than it is to um, try to describe it, but you'll hear things like tangential thought, meaning that if you were to imagine that, as we're having a conversation here, you're surrounded by sensory experience and you're in the world like with me and so even though you're focused on my voice there's a lot of other stuff going on and it your mind is actively filtering all that out and so when you think of a response to me or a response to the environment in general you can maintain a line of reason and if I was allowing you to speak right now or I was speaking as I'm doing right now in my head even though I'm not totally conscious of this there's always multiple paths I could take to what I want to say next but My mind generally is working well enough where I can string together a coherent statement and you understand the relationship between what I said now and what I'll say a minute from now, even though there are almost infinite possibilities of what I could say. And when people start to lose that, we broadly describe it as a loosening of associations if it gets to the point where there apparently is just no relationship between the possible statements and possible thoughts and what the person chooses to, uh, what they seem to engage in both mentally and through their behavior. Then we would describe it as tangential. And we can also describe it as circumstantial if they have maintained the ability to kind of pull it in at the last moment. So they can sort of see that they're drifting and they have enough awareness of the external world to perceive, say in my body language or in what, what's going on around them, they start to understand, this is not what I was asked, and they pick up on the fact that everybody's responding to them as though what they've said is inappropriate. That's still thought disorder, it's just usually less severe. Sometimes, though, what you'll also see is people will lose the capacity for abstraction. We'll describe it as being very concrete, so they almost have a... um, deficit in language processing at that point, where they, it's not language per se, they understand the meaning of words perfectly well, they can speak and they would still be articulate, but they have trouble deriving meaning from words the way we would, and this is thought to be because they aren't really assessing context anymore, they are so preoccupied with their internal mental space that the context of the external world is less meaningful and they can't engage with it, so they start to display what we described before, low agreeableness, because actually they they have trouble registering the emotional responses of others are meaningful. They may be unable to interpret proverbs. They can't speak in colloquialisms or axioms or things like that. These turns of phrase that have kind of abstracted meaning or are part of a shared experience of a culture don't mean anything to them anymore. And so that's usually when it looks subtle. This will also be missed sometimes because if you just ask them like how are you doing are you okay they can maintain that part of the conversation usually to if there's some element of odd or disconnected belief if they actually have a delusion they may not immediately volunteer that to you if they are aware of it because they oftentimes know they're talking to a psychiatrist so they if they feel like this is something that would be odd they won't say it out loud but as a quality of the delusions delusions are things about things people care about Nobody has a delusion about, you know, there's like a family of mice that live in my wall and they mind their own business. It's there's a family of mice that live in my wall and they steal my socks every night and they talk to me and they're plotting against me. There is something, there is some connection to the delusion that is meaningful to them. So they will tell you about it eventually. Or if you ask them about it, they won't be able to resist talking about it. And so that's when you see it in a more subtle way. I just bring that up because sometimes even even the things that you would think of as being very dramatic will appear subtle when you actually speak to somebody suffering with it. Delusional disorder can be really striking this way,
2: where somebody is very functional except for one specific delusion. And it's almost like talking to, I guess, a really dedicated conspiracy theorist where they will be able to engage Just as you would expect in every way except on this one topic where they are utterly convinced that whatever situation these mice are living in the walls and you will never dissuade them of that. Even if they're well, they might not ever really come to terms with the fact that that was not true. They will kind of work around it and say like, oh yeah, that's not happening
3: anymore. And usually that's an aspect of it where even though we characterize delusional disorder as being a psychiatric illness in which you have an isolated delusion. It's not truly isolated ever. There's an element of thought disorder surrounding the delusion because the delusion is fundamentally an element of thought disorder. So a lot of times you will get vague statements concerning the delusion. People will say like, yeah, I don't worry about that anymore. It's like, well, are the mice still there? And they'll, they'll be like, I don't know, maybe they moved. And then you're like, well, I mean, did you see them leave? And they'll just kind of avoid talking about it. And you can tell they just can't, they cannot process this as well as if it was something that was truly part of shared experience where we could all look at the same thing, use the same language and describe it that way. There is an element of disorganization around it. And that's usually what we're looking for more than the actual content of the delusion itself. That often trips up a lot of medical students and people like that because they think, how do you ask about delusions? Because people can have delusions about anything. There's no way... There's some classic ones, you know, people believe they're being followed, being surveyed, they believe that somebody's going to harm them, all this type of stuff. At the same time, you can't ask everything. The truth is, when people suffer from delusions, it influences aspects of their thought other than just that. So you can pick up on the subtlety of it, and usually that kind of leads you down the path of working out what the content is. There's also a selection bias. Like you were saying near the beginning of the conversation
2: about impaired functionality, I mean, if somebody has a delusion, but they're getting by just fine, they're not going to be sitting in front of you in the emergency room or in the hospital. So that alone can give you some clue as to whether this is going to be relevant. It is unlikely that you're just going to stumble upon somebody with a severe delusional disorder with nothing else wrong.
3: So I think that can really inform how deeply you want to dive into it. And you can have odd beliefs without them being delusion. There's a gradient. Your, your ability to entertain abstract uh, notions of could this possibly not be true, can you manipulate that information in a meaningful way, all these things, you know, you can believe totally ridiculous stuff and not have a delusion. Right, and the definition we keep being told about
2: delusions is that they have to be fixed, false, and idiosyncratic. So you, if you cannot challenge the belief, if it is demonstrably not true, and if there's nobody else who believes the same thing, so that's where it gets a little weird with things like flat
3: earthers, where it's a very bizarre belief, but a number of people believe it, so it's kind of out the window as a, as a true delusion. Yeah, and you can sometimes argue that um, people that are prone to that may actually be people with extremely high openness and agreeableness, where they're just prone to be so trusting and accepting of other things that they will they will adopt seemingly outlandish beliefs, but they usually cognitively don't have the same structure as a the delusion. They are motivated by external experience. They can usually manipulate, at least in like an abstract way, in a basically abstract way, what would it be like if this wasn't true. You had asked originally, like, what was the kind of big baskets of these things? The reason we care about that is that elements of psychosis, particularly hallucinations, exist in acute states. The reason I care about the psychosis is not only is it that psychosis itself is dangerous is that psychosis is often an element of acute intoxication or delirium um, or withdrawal which can be medically significant and whenever we see somebody that has a profound change in behavior or thought structure that's actually probably the most urgently dangerous thing they could be experiencing is in fact they're in withdrawal or they're intoxicated and if you get some evidence for that. That sort of makes the rest of the exam a wash because that's what you need to worry about is that they could either one, it's just going to be a matter of time and they have to kind of detox themselves and come down off of whatever they're on or they're in withdrawal and that's only going to get worse and you need to treat it. But once you've kind of passed that checkpoint and you feel more comfortable with it, then you're looking at usually affective disorders. And so you're looking at elements of depression, mania, and then Maybe under the same umbrella, but not quite anxiety. Usually, what you're looking for is the typical depressive symptoms. Has the person had changes in the in their sleep and what they're eating? Are they able to display emotion the same way that people without depression would be able to? What is their speech like? What is their thought organization like? Do are there any particular themes? And that also usually leads up. Sometimes you don't leave with lead with this, but in your mind, what you're worried about in an emergency room is does the person have a form of depression which represents an acute harm to themselves it's extremely rare often not really what will happen because you're seeing the person in a therapeutic environment part of the intervention to prevent that has already occurred at that time because they're there with you they're being observed but you're still worried about it because that may change your mind about treatment later what you do is you look for you just look at what's in front of you at that time and you say is this person suffering from depression That's where you get into the perspectives. You need to know the context of what they're going through. You need to know what are they experiencing in their life recently? Is this in response to anything or is it out of the blue? Chronicity is a huge part of psychiatry. How long has this been going on? Have you ever felt anything like it before? Where does this rate between the worst it's been and your average day? And usually if you're asking these questions, you're more in the realm of anxiety or depression. If somebody's manic, that is not a subtle thing. They are manic and you will see it. They will talk fast. They will easily engage with you. In fact, they almost can't disengage from you socially. They are so attuned to their external environment that you will become immediately salient to them. They will keep talking to you. It's not a subtle thing at that point. So usually... That's kind of your across-the-room diagnosis. So by the time you've gotten through, you've thought about psychosis, you've thought about intoxication, now you're at the realm of, do they have a mood disorder? And then there's this whole idea of, you know, is the mood disorder independent of anxiety? Can you have anxiety independent of depression? In many people, you can. You know, you think about, are they related? Does it change treatment? In the short term, it often does not. So it may not motivate that. And you just kind of work from there. There are a couple of special situations, and these usually happen as a matter of clinical concern. Just when you walk up to the person, you see things. Even though we talk a lot about possibility of self-harm and risk assessments regarding self-harm or suicide, the most lethal psychiatric disorders are eating disorders. That's something that may not be part of a screening interview necessarily that you do with everybody, but it's something that based on their clinical presentation appearance and their behavior, you might start to ask about. Yeah, and that becomes a whole nother situation because
2: that requires very specialized care I know we have a specialized unit at Hopkins uh, like we talked about with dr. Redgrave that's not something you're gonna commonly see the problem is that when you do see it it's not something that responds to most of the standard tools in our toolbox either
3: and a lot of this also varies with the degree to which the person you're interviewing can communicate with you if it's in an outpatient office and they've chosen to come here and they can tell you what's wrong that's very different It's a little different if you're in the emergency room and what you're always worried about in the emergency room is the person that you're told is anxious and you go and you see them. And by anxious, they meant terrified sitting in the corner and not speaking to anybody. And you're like, well, they're profoundly psychotic. They're not anxious.
1: Thank you for providing that overview of how you approach getting to the diagnosis.
0: All right, we're going to leave that off there. We wanted to break this one into two parts so that it was a little easier to digest. So please stay tuned next week for our continued discussion with Dr. Rosano. As always, if you learn something interesting or have something you'd like to discuss, please seek us out on Twitter or Facebook, or you can reach us directly at at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon.